Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Magic in the Moon podcast. As always, I'm your host, David. This week, I am back, like I said, with a full-length episode. Um, So for those of you that did not particularly enjoy my uh, random mini-episode about Santa Muerte, my apologies. Um, And as promised, I am back with a full-length episode. So this week, I want to talk about Mary. Um, I have talked about Mary before, mostly with uh, Flo from Becoming Our Lady podcast, but I realized I've never really had an episode dedicated to just Mary, Um, because even in those episodes with Flo, uh, we talked about Mary, but we didn't only talk about Mary, and it was kind of just like bouncing around different topics, so I wanted to do like a proper um, episode just about her. So I'm going to give a little bit of an overview academically as an excuse to use my religious studies degree and just talk about um, her, I guess, uh, context in Christianity and Islam and other religious traditions that I'm going to talk about a little bit um, of my devotion to Mary and what that looks like in my spiritual practice. And I think it's going to be really cool. So uh, I'm sure we've all heard of Mary in some way or another. But Mary was a first century Jewish woman of Nazareth, the wife of Joseph, and the mother of Jesus. Both the New Testament of the Christian Bible and the Muslim Quran describe Mary as being a virgin. And according to Christian theology, Mary conceived Jesus immaculately, without sex, through the Holy Spirit, while still a virgin, and then accompanied Joseph to Bethlehem, where Jesus was born. She's been venerated since early Christianity, and she's considered by millions to be the holiest and greatest of the saints because of her extraordinary virtues, as seen at the Annunciation by the Archangel Gabriel, and she is said to have miraculously appeared to believers many times over the centuries. The Eastern and Oriental Orthodox, Catholic, Anglican, and Lutheran churches believe that Mary, as mother of Jesus, is the Theotokos, which means God-bearer or mother of God. There's a lot of diversity in the Marian beliefs and devotional practices of Christian traditions. The Catholic Church, for example, holds very distinctive Marian dogmas, especially her status as the mother of God, her immaculate conception, her perpetual virginity, and her assumption into heaven. Many Protestant Christians minimize Mary's role within Christianity, and they base that argument on the alleged lack of biblical support for her beliefs, um, or beliefs in her, rather. But Mary also has the highest position in Islam among all women. She's mentioned in the Quran more than the Bible. And two of the longer chapters of the Quran are named after Mary and her family. According to Catholic and Eastern Christian teachings, at the end of her human life, God raised Mary's body into heaven. And this is known in the Christian West as the Assumption of Mary. And in the East, it's called the Dormition of the Mother of God. So let's get into it. So Mary's name in the original manuscripts of the New Testament were based on her original Aramaic name, which can be transliterated as Miriam. And the English name Mary comes from the Greek Maria, which is a shortened form of the Aramaic word. And both of these translations appear in the New Testament. In Christianity, Mary is commonly referred to as the Virgin Mary, in accordance with the belief that the Holy Spirit impregnated her, thereby conceiving her firstborn Jesus miraculously without sexual intercourse with her fiancé and eventual husband, Joseph. Uh, The Bible says until her son was born, referencing Jesus. The word until has inspired a lot of analysis on whether or not Mary and Joseph had other children after Jesus was born. 
Um, but among her many other names and titles, she's called the Blessed Virgin Mary, Saint Mary, the Mother of God, Theotokos, or just Our Lady. She's also called Queen of Heaven, although the title Queen of Heaven was used for many thousands of years before Christianity to refer to many different goddesses of the sky, such as Inanna, Astarte, Hera even. So that's an interesting tidbit we'll get into later. But titles in use vary among Anglicans, Lutherans, Catholics, Orthodox Christians, Protestants, etc., but the three main titles for Mary used by Orthodox Christians are Theotokos, meaning God-bearer, Aparthenos, meaning the Eternal Virgin, as confirmed in the Second Council of Constantinople in 553 CE, and Panagia, meaning the All-Holy. Catholics use a wide variety of titles for Mary, and these titles have given turn, um, in turn rise to many different artistic depictions, and there's a wide and very, very old tradition of Marian art in the Catholic Church as well. Our Lady of Sorrows um, would be a good example of that, including um, Michelangelo's masterpiece, uh, the Piazza, which is a marble carving uh, of Mary holding the crucified Jesus in her arms. So the title Theotokos, which literally translates as God-bearer, but some people translate more commonly as Mother of God, was recognized at the Council of Ephesus in 431 CE. The direct equivalents of this title in Latin are de para and de genetrix, although the phrase is more often loosely translated into Latin as mater dei, which means mother of God. Some Marian titles have direct scriptural basis, like queen mother has been given to Mary as she was the mother of Jesus, who is called the king of kings, and this is due to his ancestral descent from King David. And other titles have arisen from reported miracles, special appeals, or occasions for calling on Mary. In Islam, Mary is called Maryam. She's often referred to by the honorific title Sadiatuna, and I don't speak Arabic, so apologies on pronunciation, but that word just means Our Lady. And it's a parallel to uh, Siyudana, which means Our Lord, and is used as a title for uh, the prophets of Islam. A related term of endearment is Tisidika which means she who confirms the truth and she who believes sincerely and completely. Another title for Mary is Kanita, which signifies her constant submission to God and her absorption into prayer and invocation. She's also called Tahira, which means one who has been purified and represents her status as one of two humans in creation and the only woman to never be touched by Satan at any point. In the Quran, she's described as the daughter of Imran and the sister of Aaron. The Gospel of Luke in the Christian New Testament mentions Mary the most times in the Bible, identifying her by name 12 times, and all of these in the infancy narrative in the book of Luke, chapters 1, verse 27, to chapter 2, verse 34. The Gospel of Matthew mentions her by name five times, and four of those times are in the infancy narrative only once outside of that. The Gospel of Mark names her only once and mentions Jesus' mother without naming her a second time. The Gospel of John refers to Mother of Jesus twice, but does not mention her by name. She's first seen at the wedding at Cana. The second reference was her standing near the cross of Jesus, together with Mary Magdalene and Mary of Clopas. And her own sister, who may very well be Mary of Clopas, is um, also there with the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is usually said to be John. And that's the only text in the canonical Gospels in which the adult Jesus has a conversation with Mary. He does not address her as mother, but as woman. 
but um, in Koine Greek, which is the original language of the Gospel of John, calling your mother woman was not disrespectful. It was actually a term of endearment. Um, it doesn't sound as rough as it does now if you were to call your, mo- <laughs> your mom woman uh, in modern English. In the Acts of the Apostles, Mary and the brothers of Jesus are mentioned in the company of the apostles who were gathered in the upper room after the ascension of Jesus. And the Catholic Church identifies the woman clothed with the Son in the book of Revelation as also being Mary. The New Testament tells very little of Mary's early history. The Gospel of Matthew does give a genealogy for Jesus by his father's paternal line, only identifying Mary as the wife of Joseph in the book of John, verse, uh, excuse me, chapter 19, verse 25. Um, it states that Mary has a sister. Semantically, it's not very clear if the sister is the same woman as Mary of Clopas or if she is left unnamed. Jerome identifies Mary of Clopas as Mary's sister. And according to the early 2nd century historian Hegesippus, Mary of Clopas was likely Mary's sister-in-law. So, Joseph's sister, basically. According to the writer of the Gospel of Luke, Mary was a relative of St. Elizabeth, who was the wife of the priest Zachariah of the priestly division of Abijah, who was herself part of the lineage of Aaron and so of the tribe of Levi. Some of those who believe the relationship with Elizabeth was on the maternal side, some believe that Mary, like Joseph, was of the royal Davidic line and so of the tribe of Judah, and that the genealogy of Jesus that's presented in the book of Luke chapter 3 from Nathan um, is the genealogy of Mary, while the genealogy from Solomon given in the book of Matthew chapter 1 is only for Joseph. So there's obviously some disagreement um, about that. So let's talk about the Annunciation. According to the Gospel of Luke, Mary resided in her own house in Nazareth in Galilee, possibly with her parents, and during her engagement or betrothal, the first stage of a Jewish marriage. Unmarried Jewish women were considered of marriable age at around 12 and a half, though the actual age of the bride varied depending on circumstances, and the marriage was preceded by a betrothal after which the bride legally belonged to the bridegroom, though she did not live with him until about a year later when the marriage was celebrated. The Archangel Gabriel announced to Mary that she was to become the mother of the Messiah by conceiving him through the Holy Spirit, and after initially expressing some incredulity and some bewilderment at this, she said, I am the servant of the Lord, let it be done as you have said. Joseph planned to quietly divorce her, but he was told her conception was by God. And basically um, he thought she had cheated on him and got pregnant by another man, but he didn't want to like make a scene. So he was just going to quietly break the engagement. But then the Archangel Gabriel showed up to Joseph as well and was like, Hey, she didn't do that. God got her pregnant. So that's the Annunciation. Uh, Quick and dirty version. So Gabriel told Mary that Elizabeth who was previously infertile, became miraculously pregnant. It's important to note that Elizabeth is also the mother of John the Baptist, which is a different story entirely. But Mary rushed to go see Elizabeth, who was living with her husband, um, Zachariah. Mary arrived at the house and greeted Elizabeth, who called Mary the mother of the Lord. And then Mary spoke words of praise that later became known as the Magnificat, from her first word in the Latin version. And after about three months, Mary returned home. So according to the author of the Gospel of Luke, a decree of the Roman Emperor Augustus required that Joseph return to his hometown of Bethlehem to register for the census. While he was there with Mary, she gave birth to Jesus, but because there was no place for them in the inn, they used a manger as a cradle, right? 
everybody knows the story of the nativity. Um, so from around the age that unmarried Jewish women would have historically become of marriageable age, it's possible that Mary gave birth when she was about 13 or 14, but no historical document tells us how old she actually was at that time. And after eight days, he was circumcised according to Jewish tradition, and he was named Yeshua, which means Yahweh is salvation. After Mary continued in the blood purifying um, another 33 days, which is just uh, a time of ritual cleanliness after childbirth, um, for a total of 40 days, she brought her birth offering and sin offering to the temple in Jerusalem so the priest could make atonement for her. They also presented Je Jesus as it was written in the law of the Lord, that every male that opens the womb will be called holy unto God. So after the prophecies of Simeon and the prophetess Anna and the gospel of Luke, the family returned to Galilee in their own city. So this is a really long process, right? They traveled to Bethlehem for the census. Mary gives birth. There was a whole purification ritual after the birth process that Mary had to go through. They had to have Jesus circumcised and then go to the temple to present him and to give offerings. And it was only after all of that, that they could actually go back home where they lived. It was a whole thing. So according to the author of the gospel of Matthew, the Magi, which interesting tidbit here about the Magi, uh, the Magi are what we often call the three kings or the three wise men, the three men from the East, etc. But the word Magi comes from the same Greek word that we get the word magician, as in user of magic. So if anyone ever tries to tell you that God doesn't like witches, you can tell them that he sent three witches to go greet his son. So he's probably down with that. So the Magi arrived at Bethlehem, where Jesus and his family were living. Joseph was warmed, and it warmed, I can't talk. Joseph was warned with an N in a dream that King Herod wanted to murder Jesus, and the family fled to Egypt and stayed there for some time. After Herod's death in 4 BCE, they returned to Nazareth and Galilee rather than Bethlehem because Herod's son Archelaus was the ruler of Judea. Mary is involved in the only event in Jesus' adolescent life that is written down. At the age of 12, Jesus, having become separated from his parents on their return journey from the Passover celebration in Jerusalem, was found in the temple among the religious teachers. And everybody was like, wow, this dude knows his shit. And he was basically like, of course I do. So uh, Mary was very present at her suggestion. And Jesus worked his first miracle during the wedding at Cana, which personally, I believe, was his own wedding to Mary Magdalene. But that is a story for a different time. Um, so the first miracle was Jesus turned water into wine at this wedding. He wasn't going to do it. He said it wasn't time yet. But then Mary was like, mm, no, yes, it is. So there are events where Mary is present along with James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, who were called Jesus's brothers and his unnamed sisters, which feels patriarchal to me that the sisters are not named. But following Jerome, the church fathers interpreted the words to mean close relatives because uh, the church does maintain that Mary remained a virgin forever and that she never had any other children after the birth of Jesus. I do not agree with that. So the hagiography of Mary and the Holy Family can be contrasted with other material in the Gospels. These references include an incident which can be interpreted as Jesus rejecting his family in the New Testament when he says, uh, when it says rather, his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent in a message asking for him. And looking at those who sat in a circle around him, Jesus said, These are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Basically saying, doesn't matter that they're my family because everyone who loves God is my family. 
Mary is also depicted as being present among the women at the crucifixion and standing near the disciple whom Jesus loved, who is believed to be the Apostle John, as well as Mary of Clopas, who may or may not be Mary's sister or sister-in-law, and then Mary Magdalene, who again, I believe, is Jesus' wife, and therefore Mary, the mother of Jesus, would be her mother-in-law. Um, this representation is called Stabar Mater, and while not recorded in the Gospel accounts, Mary cradling the dead body of her son is a common figure in art, and it's often called Pieta, which means pity. And that's where we have like the very, very famous sculpture by Michelangelo um, of Mary holding the dead Jesus. I'm going to try and get through this last part a little bit quickly so we have time to talk about other things. Um, so after the ascension of Jesus in the book of Acts, um, around chapter 1, verse 14, Mary is the only one other than the apostles to be mentioned by name who waited in the upper room when they returned to Mount Olivet's. So from this time, she disappears from biblical accounts, but it is held by Catholic tradition that she is the heavenly woman of the book of Revelation. Her death is not recorded in the scriptures, but Orthodox Christian tradition, which is tol <laughs> tolerated by Catholics, uh, has her first dying and natural death, known as the Dormition of Mary, which means the sleep of Mary. And then after that, her body and soul was taken into heaven, the Assumption of Mary. So belief in the physical taking up of Mary's body into heaven is a dogma of the Catholic Church and the Latin and Eastern Catholic Churches and is believed by some of the Eastern Orthodox Church as well as, um, as, well as the Coptic Churches and then some of the Anglican Communion. Although in the Anglican tradition, I think that's kind of seen as being a very pious, extreme opinion. It's not necessarily like a, a dogma the way it is in the Catholic Church. So that's um, some academic and some historical information about Mary. That's the ways that she is present in the gospel narratives. That's the perspectives on her from Christian and Muslim uh, understandings. Now I'm going to talk to you about my own relationship with Mary. So for those of you that have been listening to this show for very long at all, you'll know that I am an initiate of a British traditional Wicca line. So um, I have two very specific deities that I'm priest of. Um, aside from that, I would say that I am a folk Catholic witch. Like I do have devotions to Mary um, and other saints and things like that. I am initiated into Candomblé and have two uh, orishas in that tradition. There's lots of others forms of paganism and polytheism going on. And I would definitely describe myself as a witch and as a pagan, as a polytheist first and foremost. So when I started feeling a draw towards Mary, I did not know what to do with that. I was not raised Catholic. Um, I did spend some time in Catholic schools, but like my family was not Catholic. I was not raised to be Catholic. So I never really had anything to do with Mary. So when she started kind of drawing me to her, I had no idea what to do. Um, I had no idea how to integrate that into my spiritual life. Um, I didn't really have the desire to, but she just made herself known to me. And it really wasn't, I didn't really answer that call until um, I kind of had some confirmation in my academic life because I was writing my undergraduate thesis on Artemis of Ephesus. Artemis being the Greek goddess of the hunt and the moon. Um, and her temple at Ephesus was one of the wonders of the ancient world. And so I was writing about that for my undergraduate thesis in religious studies. And 
I began to see all of these parallels and overlaps between Mary and just different goddesses in general, but specifically Mary and Artemis Diana. So like her temple at Ephesus eventually became a church dedicated to Mary. Um, And it was just this culture of the Roman Empire so desperately had a devotion to the goddess that when the church began to take over, they knew they could never do so without giving them a divine feminine principle. And the people, not the church, but the people demanded that Mary be called the mother of God and that she be honored and venerated. So that's kind of when I had the context that I feel I needed to develop a personal syncretism between Mary and the lady of the moon. And for those of you that have listened to this show for a little bit at all, you'll know that the lady of the moon is kind of the core of everything that I do spiritually. So I personally, this is not any kind of academic, anything. This is just my personal view and my personal gnosis is that Mary was a mortal human woman that she incarnated um, through her pregnancy, a divine manifestation or avatar, if you will, of a sun deity that became Jesus and that sun S U N. And then that upon her death, she was taken up into heaven or whatever is on the other side of this veil and kind of unified with the lady of the moon and was that incarnate. She was divine feminine incarnation in the same way that Jesus was for the masculine. So I see her as one face of the many faces of the great mother. And that's kind of how I've integrated that into like my spiritual practice as a pagan, as a polytheist. So that also was kind of my entry into folk Catholicism. Um, but Candomblé, as well as the other uh, African diaspora religions, have some syncretism with saints as well. So that wasn't the only entry point, but it was definitely a, a large one for me. So um, I do pray the rosary every day. I pray as a devotion to Mary, but also um, as a spell, a spell work. I will dedicate a rosary prayer as a healing spell or a protection spell to those that need it, or I will do it... Um, as a weapon, the rosary is a weapon to bind things. So that is kind of the role that Mary has now in my spiritual practice. It's kind of odd. It's kind of different. But um, that's how she's made herself known to me. And that is how I continue to um, honor her. So that was fun. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. It was um, a little heavy on academia, but also kind of just my own personal experience, which I I enjoyed sharing with you. So we have a few minutes left in our time, and I want to answer some questions that I've been asked about Mary um, a lot. So these are either comments I've gotten on my episodes with Flo, or they've just been on like my Instagram or whatever. But one of them is, um, do you have to be a Christian or Catholic to work with Mary? No, (laughs) no, you don't. I am not Christian or Catholic, um, and I have a devotion to Mary, so no, you don't have to. You do not have to have a devotion. uh, You don't have to be Catholic or Christian to devote yourself to Mary. There are some people I know, um, because even though I'm not Catholic, I would describe part of my practice as being full Catholic witchcraft. So there are some people I know that do view Mary more 
on the kind of traditional Christian side of things where they view her as an intercessor. They don't really pray or work with her. Um, they more so petition her to like go to the biblical God on their behalf, which is totally great for the people that practice that way. Um, I view Mary as kind of a goddess in her own way um, or an expression of a goddess rather. So I don't really do that. I don't really work with her as a saint, but uh, some people do and that's fine. Next question is, do you have to attend mass to be a folk Catholic witch? Uh, no. Again, um, folk Catholicism is just the Catholicism of the people. And the institutional church over its time has colonized and appropriated and absorbed many different spiritual and cultural things. So I definitely think that it's fair game to take the bits of Catholicism that you want and resonate with and use those in ways that you see fit. Um, there are many people that work with Mary and the saints uh, in a spiritual context that has nothing to do with the institutional church or with Christianity. So no, you do not have to go to mass, but there are some people that do. Um, there's a friend of mine uh, who was a guest on the podcast a, a little bit ago called Michael Therese McQueen. Um, and we talked about that on the episode as well. And I'll link that in this episode's description. Okay. Oh, this is cool. Uh, this question says, is there a certain title or form of Mary that you work with the most? Um, this is me splitting hairs a little bit. I'm not like a huge fan of the word work with. Um, I know some people prefer it because they don't like the word worship, but uh, not not really for me. So I don't really work with Mary, but I honor her. I revere her. I venerate her. Um, there have been a few different ones. Um, I particularly love Our Lady of Navigators or uh, in Portuguese is Nossa Senhora do Navegantes. Um, she syncretized with Yamanja, who is one of the Orishas, uh, prominent in Brazil. So that's a form of her I um, have a devotion to, but I'd say probably the largest one for me is going to be um, Guadalupe, for sure. She's the go-to for me, has been for a while, but uh, Our Lady of Sorrows is also on the altar. All right, well, um, that's pretty much all the time we have. That's all I have for you all this time. Hope you enjoyed learning about Mary and learning about my um, very unorthodox view of and relationship to Mary, but I will see you all next time.